I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week's episode has a trigger warning for potentially upsetting subject matter. Check the show notes at www.bitchesoncomics.com to find out more. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. My name is Sarah Century, and I was chirogenically frozen in 1996. I was woken up yesterday. And I'm Essie Fleenor, and I'm actually currently cryogenically frozen. We have a question from Vote November 3rd on Twitter. Yeah, do Vote November 3rd. Have you read many comics that fridge the mentally ill? I watched Ozark season three, and they created a really compelling bipolar character just to kill him. It was enraging at the very least. And can you also talk about mentally ill characters who aren't fridged and are good representation? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I have some thoughts. I had a few that came to mind just immediately. I think that there's a lot of characters that are played for mentally ill. This happens across mediums. This happens in soap operas. It happens in film, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have that really strong villainization, usually, of people who are suffering mental illness. You know, we're talking about, like, comic books and stuff like that. So, dear God, you know, Batman's entire rogue gallery, pretty much. That's all questions of stuff like that. And then, of course, just the staunch villainization, I think, is the strongest message to take from a lot of the Batman rogues gallery. But I think that also characters that were really frustrating for me would include Aurora from Alpha Flight, who I have written about, who is a character who has multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, which some people question if it even exists, but some people certainly don't. Some people have experienced it. 
And her character is reduced to this nun whore situation where it's just, here's her prim and proper self and here's Aurora who's all sexy and wants to date all the men and like flirts with everybody and like her other self who hates that version, right? So there's just an immediate hatred of herself that you see from either side, right? And it's also very much duality instead of it being facets. It's just one or the other all of the time and they're both super unhealthy. And she is a super hero, although you would not guess that from how she has been treated by writers because she is <laughs> implicitly just punished again and again, treated very badly, much I more badly. why that is. Much hmm. more badly than almost any villain. So you have a, a character like Aurora, who to me is extremely interesting. I think that there's so many directions that they could go with that character. But you see writer after writer just hit this massive wall with her. It's either about her accepting her other self and being like, oh, it's okay. Like they hug each other, you know, in her mind and stuff like that. Or it's about her just completely out of control. And they can't ever seem to find a place where they want to be with her. And they again and again fridge her. If it's not, you know, in a physical death, it's because she is now a villain. Now she's written out of the comic. Now she only pops up in an issue of like a Weapon X story or something so that Wolverine can slap her in the face a bunch of times because that's what you do to the mentally ill, I guess. There's just like a bunch of scenarios with Aurora that are so, so upsetting (laughs) that writing about her as a character was really a hard week because it's difficult to read those comics, especially if you know people who are mentally ill or if you are, or also if you just are a human and have feelings for women at all, I guess, like, and you don't think that they deserve to be punished for being sexy. It's really hard to read those Aurora appearances. And the ones that I think where, you know, oh, I've finally come to grips with my duality and all of that, to me, that's just simplifying the issue to such an extreme degree that they might as well be fridging her because it's like the next time she pops up, this is all going to be unwritten and you know it, you know, like trying to give her this kind of fake happy ending to me, I think is really gross almost because it's like, A, that's not the reality that you've set up here. You know, we've seen horrible violence be done to this character and we've never really been able to see her just exist. She's never had any kind of healthy interactions with her own duality or even really the other characters in her story. So, I mean, that sucks. That story is really difficult and I like that character a lot. So I, I mean, I haven't seen Ozarks, but I am going to say that I get it. This happens a lot. Yeah, it's frustrating as hell, too, you know, to see the ways that people who are, you know, mentally ill or grapple with mental health. I identify as someone who grapples with depression and anxiety. And, like, it's hard to see people like me treated like they're not worthy of being, alive and when you first tweeted this question i responded talking about season four of buffy which is really frustrating there are interesting ways buffy grapples with mental illness but the really fucked up one is when glory comes to town and she feeds off the psychic energy of humans and so after she feeds on someone she leaves them speaking nonsense wandering around Um, They end up being sort of like hypnotized by her to do their bidding toward the end of the season. And there's this point where someone calls down a quote unquote queller demon and the queller demon kills so many people who she has, you know, messed with their brains. And it's just like so disappointing because no one cares. (laughs) 
They're like, oh, this is bad that people died. Let's go get the Queller demon. Oh, no, now it's threatening Joyce. Now we're really upset, which, you know, is such a bummer. And I think it's just hard to see how little people care for the lives of people like myself and people I love. And eh, it bums me out big time. But one of the representations that I I really like and, and think you know, Sarah, we talked about it before in regards to the comic versus TV adaptation is Jane from Doom Patrol. She has dissociative identity disorder and or multiple personality disorder, depending on when it's being described. And each of her personalities has different powers. And so there's a cool aspect of like, she gets to be powerful at all these points, but in the comic, not always the best representation. But it seems to me, at least in the TV show, that it is really quite powerful. She very much has control over who she is and that who she is is all of her identities. And I, I, they do some really interesting things with the underground in, in the series. And I know you loved it too, Sarah. So I don't know what you wanted to share, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of, the better characters because it's never simplified, right? Mm -hmm. Like there isn't this easy out for Jane ever. There will never be. And her having to accept that, I think is just such a prominent part of her arc that she's always going to have this and that like there are strengths to it, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's also not the disassociative identity disorder that's really the mental illness, right? Like there's an issue of her feeling depressed, traumatized, hurt, And it's not a matter of I have to fix myself. It's a matter of I have to come to peace with myself. Exactly. And it's more because of the position I've been put in by the world, you know, than me. And that is certainly true of all mental illness, I would say, or like at least least most, you know, it's just it's not your fault. And it's not something that you should have to feel bad about just because of the way that the world talks about it and treats it. Exactly. Hopefully we can get better about that stuff. But whenever it comes to Jane, it's like all of her personalities have their own mental illness, like their own issues with mental health, their own personalities. And so Jane's specific instance of being depressed and traumatized, it definitely has something to do with the rest of them because they were there, you know, like they have all been present during everything that's happened to Jane, but they're not the problem. Like it's not really them Mm -hmm. that is the issue. It's the fact that people hurt her, you know? So it's like, to me, that's actually a great representation Mm -hmm. overall. You know, the comics definitely struggle. The (laughs) 90s, edgelord time, um, you know, calling somebody crazy made sense back then, I guess. But here (laughs) it's just like a little bit more questionable, you know, in like 2020. But then you see that it really is a commentary on other people, right? Like it doesn't have so much to do with Jane that people call her crazy Jane. Like she doesn't really call herself that. (laughs) Not really the name that she chooses she says jane she ends up being this incredibly important figure for larry even about what it means to have powers inside of you that are not under your control or not the same as you right like her powers they're dependent on the personalities that she has and larry's powers are dependent on the negative spirit and so she teaches him about the importance of accepting them not trying to control them, not trying to break them down, not trying to put them under your dominance, but accepting them and letting them have their own desires and wants and experience. And again, this is like 
<laughs> fantasy. So it doesn't have a one-to-one correlation with reality necessarily. But I think that's a really beautiful image. And it really reinforces what you were saying, Sarah. That the problem is not Jane. Just like the problem is not the negative spirit. The problem is trying to make that person be this other thing, fit in this box of what dominant society is. I remember reading at some point, and I wish I remembered where, but someone made the point that disability is not actually a condition of the individual. Disability is created by a society that will not include people. We have buses that are not accessible because we choose not to make our buses accessible, not because buses are naturally inaccessible. That's talking about physical disability, but I think that's a really good metaphor for thinking about all disability because the disability is not the problem. Society is the problem. And that's exactly what you were saying, Sarah. And I think that's what is so fantastic about Doom Patrol's portrayal of not just Jane's depression, but, you know, Larry's depressed and, and you know, struggling with his sexuality. And I, I think there's just so many layers there that are so beautiful. And to me, it's one of the best, like you were saying, depictions there is. I mean, everybody in that show is struggling with yeah, for sure. some kind of mental <laughs> sure. health issue. You certainly have, you know, Rita who has like narcissism and stuff like that. And that is diagnosable. So I would say, too, I can't really talk about the portrayal of mental illness in comics if I'm not going to bring up the Scarlet Witch, who I have written about, definitely, her issues and how... How weird it is to read. And of course, we never really try to go after specific creators on this podcast, but I will say that Bendis, you have a track record. Good God. Seriously. So Wanda Maximov, of course, is a character who very regularly was portrayed as being, you know, as typical women of the time period were portrayed in comics, was basically very weak, you know, not able to fend for herself, needs her brother to protect her, you know ends up gravitating towards the Vision, who is an android, you know, and in in many parts of the story can't really hope to relate to her as a human being. Goes back and forth on that one, of course. But she almost always was struggling with some kind of mental illness, and it is true of reading those comics, right? You see that there is some precedent to this ultimate, extremely offensive story that comes out of that. So you have her struggle, you know, she has kids. Does she have kids? You know, all of that stuff, I think, is just such a, well, she's a woman, so there has to be some kind of baby thing happening. All of these creators, all of these specifically straight male creators kind of tried to take her in so many different directions and then they couldn't reconcile other people's takes. And so you end up with this kind of an uneven character. And she's also frequently overshadowed by like the presence of these dominant male personalities. So, you know, then she goes to like somebody like Vision who (laughs) she can kind of boss him around, you know, like she's an android. So it's like there's a different dynamic between those two. So, you know, in some ways that could have been healthy. Years later, we have Brian Michael Bendis do the disassembled storyline. And in an interview, he talked about Scarlet Witch who loses her sanity, you know, or whatever terrible reductive phrase is used. But he says that he felt her being Magneto's daughter was a recipe for crazy. And that was the entire basis of this storyline, basically. Jesus fucking Christ. It gets hard to love Bendis. <laughs> I will say that <laughs> whenever you really like these female characters that kind of get trashed by him. 
So Scarlet Witch, she has a breakdown, which like, again, when you talk to any therapist, they're going to tell you like people snapping isn't really a thing, you know, like there's always a buildup, there's always reasons, you know. And of course, that's very much taken away from Scarlet Witch is basically like, oh, she just couldn't handle reality anymore. And it was too bad for everybody. And so then, of course, she, you know, accidentally causes death of her teammates and nobody can get through to her and people hate her and stuff like that. And if people start having a conversation of like, well, she's too powerful to be alive. So like, how are we going to take her out? You know, the X-Men show up and want to fight with the Avengers over this. And people are on all sides of that. Like people do want her to be taken out. And that is nuts. (laughs) So she starts the M-World. She creates her own universe. And of course, this just makes everybody more mad at her in the end. But she does do the no new mutants, no more mutants line, right? So she does something that's completely unforgivable in the story. Later, obviously, everybody gets tired of not having the Scarlet Witch in comics anymore. (laughs) So (laughs) we want her back. And she has an ongoing solo series that really talks a lot about her having to get treatment. She's bipolar in that story. You know, it's basically like her kind of trying to come to grips and be healthy about her mental illness. But it also says, hey, this person's bipolar um, and she almost like destroyed the entire universe, (laughs) you know? So it's like, it doesn't send great messages even by the end of it, right? Like there's no point where it sends a great message. But if you only read the Scarlet Witch series part of that, then you'd be like, oh, this is really healthy and awesome of Wanda to be moving forward and stuff like that. So I think that Wanda is a character where we just still haven't seen the end of it. Like on Krakoa, she is known as the pretender right now because she is the mutant who turned on mutant kind, right? So she's like a traitor character, which all of this is very salacious. And like, I love Wanda. This is like, you know, you have the characters of like, step on my neck, I would die for you. And I have to say that Wanda is one of mine because it's like, she's so interesting and so compelling. And then the best thing you could think to do with this character was to be like, well, she snapped and killed her teammates. You know, like all of that stuff was absurd. And committed genocide because she was upset. Yeah, because powerful women, once again. Exactly. another powerful redhead. And also there's like a long tradition of erasing her heritage and stuff like that. But she's Romani. So this is extremely problematic to be like, here's one of the only five Romani characters in fiction, you know, or in Marvel Comics at least. And be like, oh yeah, well, she's also like attempted mass murder. And people forgive her and stuff. So that's like, you know, this kind of forgiveness arc in a weird way. But a lot of people don't. But I always feel like with her story, they always tried to simplify her so much that it wasn't like somebody who was bipolar, you know, like it wasn't like that. I remember listening to an interview on Explain the X-Men with Andrea Letamendi, who is one of the two people who does the Arkham Sessions. She's a psychologist who talks about superheroes. So she talked about X-Men characters and that, and she was talking about representation. And she was like, maybe if you don't experience mental health issues, maybe you should not specify what you're talking about. Like you can have a character do things that like for you might match up with these descriptions, but it would be for the best maybe if you don't try to like add a label to it if you don't people. know what it's like. Yeah, if you maybe just don't try to come out here and diagnose people and especially don't try to diagnose people as 
a recipe for crazy oh just because you God. decided that being related to Magneto was the most defining thing in a fucking 50-year-old character's fucking history. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. A woman's daddy. That's what defines her. Gotta remember that. So many more interesting ways to go with that character. Like, totally. she becomes a witch, a literal witch at a certain point because she trains with this woman, Agatha Harkness. Like, there's so many ways you could have gone with Scarlet Witch. Totally. But instead, now we always have these stories that are just like, she did a terrible thing and like, it's all this like redemption thing and like, do the X-Men forgive her? Oh, they don't. That's drama and like all of this. And it's just like, that's a hard thing for you to put on a bipolar character to be like, this character is bipolar. And then that's like what is going on. So I want to say, I love that character. I don't love, I'm going to say maybe like 90% of the things that have happened over the last several years with her. And I think for all of the reasons that I just explained, it's like not a good representation of mental health or anything. Yeah. And I think that we just literally can't have an episode about mental illness and not talk about two characters that are near and dear to my heart. Deadpool and Harley Quinn. Right. Relatively brief because they're not terribly complex because Jesus damn it fucking ass. <laughs> That's a technical yes. term for the problem. Yeah. So, you know, Deadpool, less so in, in more recent runs, but historically and, and certainly creator Nicieza says like, oh, he's crazy because his cells reproduce themselves and he's never can keep his thoughts straight. And it sucks. It also, this is the trope, they have mystique where it's just like, oh, she changed her brain too many times. Exactly. So now she's like, that's why she acted weird. And it's like, no, it's because there were like five writers who don't know how to write this character oh, who wrote her at, all in a row. <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to read from one to the next because none of them <laughs> read the other runs. So that's why, you know, people like look at that character and they're like, she's acting irrationally. And then people are like, irrational, that must mean mental illness. And then yeah. they're like, here's this reason that mystique is doing these things and it's because of mental illness and it's like that's extremely offensive but extremely. I have a feeling that this is going to slightly tie into your Deadpool story. Exactly. They're very similar in that regard where it's just like people want to be as funny as possible with Deadpool and they're like oh, you know what's funny? Voices in your head. You know what's funny? Being unpredictable. You know what's funny? Being crazy. Again I'm using crazy because that is literally the terms creators have used to refer to Deadpool not how I view Deadpool. No they refer I mean on the page Harley Quinn gets referred to as a psycho yeah, multiple times exactly. in almost every story. Exactly. It's like, great. And it just, A, again, like you're not clinicians. You don't fucking know what you're talking about. Psychopaths are real people. <laughs> like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But with Deadpool, it's like, it just ends up being this punching bag. You never have to take him seriously. You never have to think about what he's doing. And when people do great storylines where they take that seriously, where they take him into his pain, usually a creator picks it up afterwards and does exactly what you're describing with Mystique had happen. They're like, oh, he blew himself up so his brain completely resets and now he has a new identity, but he's still weighed and he's still the same in every single way, except he doesn't have to have any real feelings. And it's like, oh, that's so not the best thing about Deadpool. The best thing about Deadpool is that he faces all of that and he deals with it and it's terrible and he knows he's not redeemable and he knows he's a bad person. And maybe he has a mental illness. I don't know. Again, I am not a clinician, but I certainly think what's funny about him is not, quote unquote, him being crazy. What's funny about Deadpool is how little he fucking cares about anything. 
that makes him funny. <laughs> and because he's working stuff out as he goes all of the time, right? Yeah, exactly. Very slapstick. <laughs> you don't necessarily have to have a mental illness arc in order for him to be working out his emotional issues exactly. as he goes along. Exactly. So like the fact that people do get so stuck on like, and then of course it, it changes things, right? Because people are just like, oh, crimes, you know, like there's just that connotation of like, that person's crazy and therefore they are hyper-violent. Exactly. And it's like, great. You know, so often it, it's also what we have uh, happen when we talk about mass shootings. People want to be like, oh, he was mentally ill. And it's like, no, <laughs> lots of mentally ill people don't hurt anyone. And that's a really problematic thing to make a connection between. So that's the other problematic piece about Deadpool is like, that's a ridiculous connection that mental illness would equal violence. And I think the same thing can be said with Harley. I think there's much more of a victimization with Harley. Again, probably I almost guarantee due to her gender. And that sucks, you know? And, and I think that we have seen some great representations of Harley, including the Connor Palmiotti run. And they don't make her, quote unquote, psycho, quote unquote, crazy pants, quote unquote, you know, like all all the horrible fucking things you and I have heard people say about poor fucking Harley and the weird way they've connected mental illness and, and lots of issues she has, codependence. You know, she does seem to have some sort of need to be like very much on top of people and, and she can be a little bit obsessive. And I'm not trying to diagnose, but just an observation. And those are important pieces of how she sees the world. But that doesn't make her sexual. <laughs> that doesn't make her a sex kitten. That doesn't make her any of those things. Like, that's just part of who she is. And it's such a hard thing because I do love Harley and I love that she could represent some aspects of mental diversity in the sense of like people can have different brains and <laughs> mentalities. <laughs> and I hate that that then equals like her being hypersexualized and treated like she's just a punching bag, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that comes up with that character again and again. And it's always really unfortunate. What I like about Harley's portrayal is the fact that very seldom, you know, if you have a good writer on the series, they have these things that she does that aren't diagnosed. Mm. Thank God. Mm -hmm. You know, you have her talk to Bernie the Beaver. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, good luck trying to diagnose what's going on there. You know, like that's something that to me is bizarre. And it's something that is what Harley would do. But it doesn't necessarily be like, oh, well, you could go to a therapist about that because it's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you could. Like, that seems like it's a basic personality trait, you know, like that isn't negative. Like she's bonding with this like taxidermy beaver. And it's good for her. Yeah, that's the best case scenario. It's really good for her. She He provides feedback. He supports her. He tells her when she right? has a really bad idea. He's funny. Um, <laughs> he makes her laugh. So to me, that's also something where it's just like a lot of times people are so stigmatized and, you know, try so hard to stigmatize people for mental illness. And then it's just like all people do things that you might have somebody be like, oh, that's weird, you know, and like all of that. So I think that First of all, that mental health is such a thing that we can't ever talk about with an authority, uh, certainly us, because we aren't, <laughs> we have no ability to We are not clinicians. Anybody we are not clinicians. <laughs> but when you're talking about what our personality is or like what our perspective is on this story and like how you see these characters who suffer from mental illness be treated really badly, we can certainly have an opinion on that because I think that 
there's so much stigmatization around it. And I see that all of the time. And I think that our culture is really geared towards it. So the fact that you see these representations, it's it's not an accident, you know, like people are doing that stuff on purpose. Killing a character after giving him such a interesting setup, as you described, like that's what happened to a lot of these characters. Either they get killed or they get dismissed, right? So, or they get reset or they get, you know, like... They're fixed now. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it is, you know, we don't... Again, it's like not dealing with the consequences or the realities of of what it means to see the world differently. And to have an ongoing situation, something that affects your health, something that is ongoing that you can't do anything about. I mean, we don't see that in this at all. Oh, we don't see people take meds like that's not normalized at all. We don't see any of that. And that's it's one of the things that like I care about so much in my fiction is like people just dealing with their shit and getting help. And so much of it can be disappointing. And then I, I love your point about Bernie and about how that is such a wonderful part of Harley's mental complexity. I like that there are silver linings, right? Like Jane's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really cool part where we go into Deadpool's mind and he has sort of like a Deadpool museum. And it's actually really interesting. It's interesting to see how he, he reflects on himself. They also do that with the, the new Harley Quinn animated series. There's one point where they go into her mind and it's kind of like a museum. And, you know, they're both characters who've been through a lot of trauma and they're both characters who've been through physical transformations, yet they're both still human-ish. There's so much out there that sucks. It's nice that there are some ones where there are interesting and complex stories being played. And I think, Sarah, you're absolutely right. The best ones are the ones that try not to diagnose anyone. It's the ones that try to really accept that, like, people are different and everybody has something that might be considered abnormal that they do or think or experience. So, uh, yeah, I mean... Thanks for the great question. <laughs> I think we've been feeling this way with a couple of our questions. I think we poised, we posed more questions than you did. But thank you for talking with us. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Good morning, comrades. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the People's Podcast. So, <laughs> 
We woke up this morning and we decided to be socialist. And therefore, what we're going to do is make sure that all of our tiers on Patreon, you get all of the things no matter what tier you subscribe to. So you can subscribe tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, and you still get the same amount of content, which is all of the content. Because once again, this is the People's Podcast. We are here, we're Marxist, and we believe that everybody deserves to eat. everybody comic of the week this time around is 13 the astonishing lives of the neuromantics which is by eves navant this is the first work that i've seen from eves and it is extremely good there is a foreword that is written by the very famous and delightful love connie so here's what it is it's called poetic graffiti artists are dangerous if you make eye contact with some they will interpret that as a threat just like me They create work with such ferocity that it threatens to swallow them whole and use them up. Art created in these conditions by these people can also be dangerous. We can lose ourselves in their words and pictures. Artists are like bad lovers, coming home to fill us with lies of beautiful and terrible worlds and people. We don't want to listen to them, but the stories they tell us are so seductive we can't help ourselves. We're consumed. I never lie. This book might be one of those dangerous lies. I lose myself and I write poetry for a man with no arms in a world that doesn't exist, yet. You take, take from me until there's nothing left but a shell, left wondering on a never-ending search for myself. I drag around the city in a mask of regret, just trying to be something I'll never be again, real. Oh, to be the real me again. And I don't even know who that is anymore. Never lose touch, love, Connie. That's such a great intro for a really fucking spectacular work. I was not expecting to like this, and I loved it. I loved every page, every panel. I thought the art was just so poppy and so real at the same time, and everything's so harsh in it, right? Because it's like this dystopian world. Yeah. I loved it. The artistic style reminds me a lot of the cartoon Eon Flux. Like, I thought Mm. that kind of elongated bodies and just like the curves of the work, I think to me just kind of struck me as very Eon Flux-like. And I mean that as the highest praise because I loved that cartoon. I grew up on watching it probably way earlier than I should have. Um, <laughs> and this kind of has that dystopian feel too, where it's just like there's people who want limbs <laughs> of other people. So they're essentially like harvesting limbs from people. The main character gets these new metallic limbs, right? Yeah. And part of the reason his limbs were purchased is because he's an artist. And so there's this class of people who get to buy upgrades to their bodies from the poor and put them on their bodies. This work ends up doing so much around gentrification, sexuality, the dogmatic religions. The religion in this one is like a source of freedom that we don't always see in queer narratives. There's so many layers at play and it's so violent but so intimate. You Mm -hmm. know, so much of it is an internal journey that is reflected externally, but really it's about this one character and his journey to understand himself within this society that is literally commodifying and stripping down his body, you know, and and replacing it with like these big gold arms like you were talking about. Whereas in some sci-fi that might be like, oh, you got an upgrade, you have metallic arms. In this one, it's like, oh, you're one of those nasty people. Like you don't get to come to this side of town, you know? Yes. 
I think that it was very interesting how sexually charged the religious scenes were because he's going to sit in a church and everybody's like kind of low key, very sexy vibes up in that church. And, oh, yeah. you know, there's men <laughs> holding hands with each other and like all of that stuff. So I was just like, oh, wow, this is what church must have been like for like gay kids basically it's like all of the metaphors are kind of come to life here and I think a lot of times there's definitely pious religious kind of overtones to things and it's always something that's like oppressive or something like that here it's a very seductive situation yeah totally So I thought that that was like just fascinating in and of itself totally I love that it's like the fascist state is anti-sexuality anti-spirituality and also like anti-carnality. And the church is pro-spirituality, pro-carnality. Again, within a framework, again, they're controlling it, but you can find sanctuary in a church so you can fuck. That is so interesting. I love this comic. It's like, I don't even know if I'll ever be done thinking about this comic because there's so much at play. Yeah, there really is. It's kind of that straightforward sci-fi thing where you're just like guy with metal arms and then you're just like, holy shit, this is like so many other things also. So yeah, it's interesting. I read an interview with the creator and he was talking about how he lived with his mother whenever oh he God, was so making this and his his mother was sick and she was dying and he was like, you can't go until I finish this comic. And unfortunately, she did ultimately have to. And he said that, you know, there's just this beautiful, touching story of him sitting with her and her apologizing because she's going to have to go before the comic is completed and things like that. And it's just so heart-wrenching. And I think that a lot of that kind of bare, raw emotion is all over this comic, honestly. Like, it makes it be such an interesting and compelling story just because it is that heartfelt. You know, there's somebody who's really suffering and going through it at the root of this. You're so right. I had forgotten about that interview, but I, yeah, I found that so important for framing the work. I think there's so much grief just woven throughout this and grief of losing oneself, grief of losing one's family, grief of existing in a society where, you know, I think it's absolutely a metaphor for how We look at art in this culture where it's constantly commodified and commercialized and made an integral part of capitalism. And that's part of what the grief he's grappling with. Part of the grief is grappling with, like, yeah, again, the loss of his mother. But there's an interesting sort of familial figure in this narrative. And I'm not going to give it away because you really just absolutely must read it. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to see how that person you know, becomes a reflection for the main character, becomes a way the main character understands what their real moral lines are, right? Like, and says, I will not cross this line. Mm -hmm. I just remember spending just so much time on every panel, just like pouring over it and thinking, oh my God, like the line work and the, the way the faces are drawn and the way violence is so prevalent, but rendered, I think with both realism and like stylization in such a way that it feels I don't know, for me, it felt tenable. I didn't love the violent sections, and there's definitely some trigger warnings for sexual assault and homophobia for certain. But I think that it's pretty incredible to see how this author grappled with those things through this, like, overtly queer lens, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a very queer story. And something that I like, too, about the comic is the way that there is such an emphasis on the people around him, even though he is very isolated. So he has these one-off interactions with Mm. people. Like, there's the protester who puts his hand on the glass of the train, and he puts his hand on the glass, and he's just like, I wish I could 
touch his hand. And, you know, just moments like that, that if you wander around any big city, you have all of these profound, weird, unsettling, all of the things kind of moments with people if you just walk around by yourself. For me, that's something that I always appreciated about living in big cities is whenever you walk around, you catch the train and all of that. And you have these kind of interim moments where you're like not at home, you're not with your friends, you know, you're not anywhere, kind of you're in between spaces. And then you see humanity interacting with each other in this way that you wouldn't see otherwise if you were just in your car driving to places, you know, and that's sometimes a good thing. And sometimes you see a lot of humanity that way. And I think that that was a feeling that comes across really well here that often you don't get from art because a lot of artists probably have cars. <laughs> like a lot yeah, of artists yeah. probably like get to places easy, you know, or whatever. And then there's artists who, you know, catch the subway every day and stuff like that. I just felt like this really captured the feeling of having these bizarre interactions with other humans that we all tend to have, actually. Totally. And I, I saw all those moments so important, too, for both. They show the universality of what he's experiencing in this culture, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, a lot of people are oppressed. A lot of people are in pain for a lot of different reasons. It also gets at, like, the specificity of, like, he's dealing with this moment of his hand on the glass against, like you were saying, the protester. But then it's also he's on his way to have his arms taken off. Mm -hmm. And so he's dealing with these tiny moments and these huge moments all at the same time. And I think that's what that navigation is, what makes it feel so intimate and so real. Like you were saying, when you take the subway everywhere, you might be on your way to get an abortion. You might be on your way to pick a friend up from the hospital. You might be on your way to school. You might be on your way to a movie. But all these small, tiny, weird things happen in the process of navigating that. And then it can be a reflection or connection to that. So I, I, I thought it was an incredibly well-paced, great combination of like tiny moments and large moments and tiny moments that become large moments. And I love the ending. I love anything that doesn't end in like a nice bow. And I thought this ended in such a way that it was hopeful and devastating. And I think that's really hard to do. I was really, really freaking impressed. Yeah, I agree. I think that this was one of those comics that you see on a lot of best of lists and it earned its spot there. This is a beautiful work. Just can't really praise it enough. So make sure you check it out. 13, The Astonishing Lives of the New Romantics. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S -E -S -S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. 
Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.